Uh, welcome back to uh, week three of uh, Hebrews. As we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we're in the second chapter, but this is the, the third week that we've been in this. So if you want to look at Hebrews chapter two, uh, normally uh, I read out of the NIV. Uh, it's a version, uh, just easy to read. I really enjoy it. Uh, it's kind of user friendly, if you will. Uh, but today I'm going to be using the ESV uh, simply because the NIV gets some things wrong. <laughs> uh, nothing major, but enough that I wanted to uh, just get that, just let you know that right away. So if you're following along in NIV and you go, oh man, this is a little different than what I'm reading. Um, and so it'll be up on, on the screen and uh, so you can follow along on the screen or if you've got an app or, or a Bible you want to read along with, feel free to do so. Um, uh, do you guys like puzzles? I like puzzles. Uh, I, there's something about it where it's just, uh, you, you think it's almost relaxing, but it never is. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to just stop. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to do a puzzle. But then you can't stop. You know, I'm kind of like, I just, I got to finish it. Uh, and it gets a little bit more stressful than probably what it should. And there was this puzzle that my wife and I have, and it's a, it's a Sherlock Holmes, like, mystery puzzle. So it's a, it's a puzzle, obviously, but there's, there's a story that comes along with the puzzle. And so normally, uh, when we look at Scripture, and it's been attributed, and I'll even read a, a quote here from Sally Lloyd-Jones, and, and where she talks about this, this, Jesus is kind of this missing puzzle piece, but I think it's, it's even more than that, that we have Scriptures, that we look at Jesus, he's not just the missing puzzle piece, he's this beautiful picture that unlocks the mystery that we can't fully understand and grasp uh, in the Old Testament. Some of the texts that, that he's this prism that we get to look back in the past and go, oh, that's why these authors in the Old Testament said that. That he, it, it makes us see the fuller picture. And so this Sherlock Holmes puzzle, you know, you put the whole thing together and you look at it and then you go, oh, here's a clue, here's a clue, here's a clue. And it helps you solve the mystery. And, and that's kind of what's happening. That's what the author of Hebrews is, is doing and that he's just giving us all of a fuller, better, bigger picture of who Jesus is. And so this week's uh, sermon is called Such a Great Salvation. We look at Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 9. And again, that, that kind of puzzle piece. Jesus talks about this, and I've read this last two weeks, and I'm going to read it again. And I don't know how often and how, how long in the future I'm going to keep reading these verses, but in John chapter 5, Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And he's talking about the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament testifies about me. And then again, in Luke chapter 2, he's talking to some, some disciples, and he says, in beginning in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures, again, just the Old Testament, concerning himself. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, this is all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. And then he says, here I am. And he points us again to Jesus. And so I've been uh, talking about this Jesus storybook Bible, just this little, little kid's book uh, that is uh, these stories in the Bible, but it's these, this, this bigger picture. It's this, um, what's it called? You have the little mosaic, right? It's these little pieces that we get, but when you step back, right, it's this puzzle piece, it's being unlocked. And everything is screaming Jesus. And so I actually just typed up, uh, from Sally Lloyd-Jones. This is the back uh, cover. Is there a fancy term for that, the description? Or is it just the back cover? Just the back cover of a book. It's got to have a name, right? I didn't Google it. I could have done that, but I didn't do that. I thought one of you would have known, so uh, I waited. Um, this is what she says. At the center of the story, the story about Jesus, there is a baby. 
and the child upon whom everything would depend, from Noah to Moses to King David, every story whispers his name. Jesus is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. So again, looking at the beginning of Hebrews chapter one, it's just this beautiful Christology, the study of Christ that, that the author of Hebrews is gonna say, this is who Jesus is. And then he's gonna spend the rest of, of the chapters, the rest of the book, proving that this is the case about who Jesus is. So in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs." And so we've kind of been having this working, ongoing analogy, if you will, this memorization for a test, right? That we, we, we study, we cram for a test just so we can pass it. And once we pass it or once class is over, it might, might fail. Most likely I've, you know, failed. Um, but C's get degrees. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm proof of that. And, and what would happen is you'd, you'd pass a test and then, and then it would be gone. It's done. It's just done. Well, I, what happened to the information? I don't know. How do you divide? I don't know. I have no clue. But uh, I used to know. And that's kind of this idea that we had this Old Testament. We had the, this author of the Hebrews writing the book to the Hebrews saying, you know this book, you have it memorized, and yet we don't know how to apply it. And so this is the analogy that we've been given. And, and again, I, I uh, customed it or, or linked it to a child opening a present on Christmas. Uh, and again, this is not my son, but uh, I guess last week this popped up and, and Henry was at home watching this and my son was even like, is that me? <laughs> so it actually does have a resemblance to my, my son, but it's not. Um, but what happens? You have this beautiful present that's wrapped nicely and the child will open the present and instead of playing with the actual gift that's in the present, wants to play with the box. But once you open the box, you, you can't go back to it. It doesn't make any sense. It's just a, a box with paper on it. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to that thing. Don't go back to the old rapper. Don't go back to the Old Testament and its laws and restrictions. Look to Jesus who fulfilled those laws. And so now we can move forward. You could even, maybe another analogy you could attest to this or, or apply to this situation would be, we've got this amazing defense. It's the number one defense in the NFL but then you go against the number one offense in the NFL and it whoops the defense. So why would you ever say the number one defense in the NFL is the thing to go? Can I get an amen? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was an inside joke. I'm a Packer fan in case uh, you didn't know that. This is true. Why would I go back to something old, something that doesn't fully fulfill everything that Jesus has said? Why would I go back to the Old Testament? Why would I go back to this old way of thinking? So, so the author of Hebrews is saying, I'm going to beat you in your own game. I'm going to go back to the text that you all know. And remember last week, the majority of the text that we looked at was Old Testament. He's just boom, dropping uh, the second Samuel and a bunch of Psalms. And he's going all over the place. And, and even the Pentateuch, and he goes, goes to Genesis. And he goes all over the place. And he says, you know this, you know this, you know this, you know this. Therefore, Jesus is better. 
Jesus is superior to the angels. So I'm going to beat you at your own game. So he uses this whole thing. Jesus is superior to the angels. And so in our text, he's going to say, therefore, stop, okay? When we get to this text, and anytime, this is kind of cheesy, except this is really helpful, that when we come across the word, therefore, in our text, in our translations, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay, it's, it's kind of cheesy. That's the whole point. What's it there for? Right, so he's saying he just built his whole case, his whole argument based on the Old Testament, based on an old text saying, you know this text. This is all about Jesus. This is all true. Jesus is superior to the angels. And again, why does he do that? Uh, within uh, Judaism and, and Hebrew culture, they had this really high view of the angels. And not in a, a weird infatuation, uh, with angels, but that the angels gave them the law. The angels were there to deliver God's message. And they said how we wouldn't even have this message if it wasn't for the angels. And the author of Hebrews, again, like a present being opened, is saying, don't look at the messenger. Don't look at the box. Look at the message. Look at Jesus that's in the box. That's what we have to go back to. Let's look at the message, not the messenger. And so he's going to, she, the author of Hebrews is going to say, if Jesus is superior to the angels, if that's true, then this, if then. So the author of Hebrews is going to say this, therefore, if that's true, if Jesus is superior to the angels, then we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to Jesus, to the message, to the New Testament, to what Christ has given us in himself and what's been revealed to us in the scriptures, let's pay closer attention to that than even what was paid attention to the Old Testament, lest we drift away. And it's this kind of analogy of, of maritime, right? That these, these uh, old pirates or these, these sailors, right? They, they tattoo on their knuckles, hold fast, right? They, they grab onto a rope. And when, when the seas are going topsy-turvy and, and a boat's about to flip over and all these different things, they would grab onto a rope. They'd grab onto some cable and they would hold fast. Why? Because it would be so easy to let go and be tossed into the sea. It'd be so easy to, to let go and, and, and shirk responsibilities, whatever it may be. I'm not, a, I'm not a sailor. I have no idea. I've been on a boat like five times. So I, don't, I, don't, I can't embody this, and yet I get the analogy. And that's what he's saying, don't, don't drift away. Hold on, hold tight, hold fast, because it is so easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and go into the water. Right? That's exactly what happens to Peter. The apostle Peter, as he's out on the water, and, and Jesus is walking the water, and he says, I want to I want to come out there too. I'm going to walk on the water. And he does. He walks out in the water. And then what happens? He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he starts to sink. And so often we do the exact same thing that our eyes get off of Jesus. And we've been talking about these old hymns of, of turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And then the things of war of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But when we take our eyes off of him, and we look at our problems, we look at the world, we look at other things that we think might satisfy us, and we drift away, 
And this is going to be the main theme, this, this idea of drifting away. Don't drift away. Hold fast. He's going to carry this idea and theme throughout the rest of the, or she, throughout the rest of the book. Hold fast. Pay much closer attention to what we have, to Jesus. Pay close attention to what's in the box, not the box itself, lest we drift away. The author of Hebrews then says this, for since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, right? This is the Old Testament. He's not saying, she's not saying that the Old Testament is, is it's, 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 it was worthless. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying, she's saying it was reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hold fast. Look at Jesus. Look at, look at what's been declared now in the New Testament. It was declared at first by the Lord, by Jesus. Jesus in the flesh, the Son of God, declared it first. And then it was attested to us by those who heard. And I just want to read a little bit here about the uh, conversion of Saul, who's going to eventually change his name to Paul, uh, who we know as the Apostle. But we're going to see this exact same thing. This first thing that was, that was declared, he, he knew the Old Testament. He had it memorized. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was, a, he was just uh, an elite individual within Judaism. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. You're too focused on the wrapping and the box. I'm here. So it's kind of long, and I, and I apologize. It's not online. Uh, I'm just going to read it, though. This is... Acts chapter 2, 1 through 22. It's kind of long, but it's narrative. So Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Murder. Right? Saul was not a good person, but he thought he was because he thought that's what the box said to do. He missed it. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Right, he was out for blood, for people that believed the message, the way. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, uh, Steve Treichler, my boss, uh, senior pastor over at uh, downtown uh, location, he, he, he has this running uh, thought, and, and I agree with him. Because what happens in those three days? That you have Saul, you have somebody who has Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy probably memorized, but doesn't know what it means. And for three days, Saul is going, okay, okay, I get that. I know this story. I know this thing. I know this thing. And then at this moment, 
Jesus shows up, that perfect little puzzle piece, and it fits right into that old narrative that he knows so well, and he goes, oh, that's what this is all about. This is about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. How could I miss this? Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and there at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that, his might, that he might see uh, his again, that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, right? So God says, I want you to go to Saul because he's had a vision of you. I've given him the same vision of you named Ananias coming to him and helping him, giving him his sight back. And Ananias goes, uh, you sure? <laughs> right? He says, Lord, um, I, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to you, to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name, right? So God, I know that you're like God, but do you know who Saul is? Do you have any idea who this guy is? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry in my name before the Gentiles, all ethne and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Hey, man, I believe in Jesus. It should all just be topsy-turvy. Should, I mean, should all just, should all just be rainbows and butterflies and sunshine and, and we're all good to go. No, Saul is called and Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered into the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. Think, just think about that. Just a day ago, this guy wanted to murder me and now he's able to say, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And Saul, oh, sorry, that's a part of that's a header there. It says, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Okay, so he's... He knows the word, he studies, he knows the Old Testament scripture and he's studying, he's thinking about these things and it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. How is that? Because this old message, this, this rapper, it's good and it's valuable, but it only gets its value because of the message that it contains and the prize and the present that is contained within it. And Saul, as he's in darkness for three days, meditating on what he already knows, goes, oh, this is all about Jesus. And then he's immediately able to go and talk to his fellow scholars and Jews and say, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. And all who heard him, all who heard Saul were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. 
So back to our text. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, this was good and true and trustworthy, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect the actual gift, if we neglect Jesus, hold fast. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There's a, I could spend a lot of time talking about miracles and miraculous things and different gifts. Uh, Charles Hodge, he's a scholar, he, he defines a miracle as this. It's an event in the external world brought about by the immediate efficiency of God. I'm not trying to split hairs here, but when we talk about a miracle, it's got to be something that is visible and obviously from God. There's no denying it. And when we look at scriptures, we look at Moses and all these different things that happened around Moses. We look at, the, at Elijah and Elisha, and they perform these incredible miracles, but they're just these random gaps, these, these two, two tiny little periods of history where miracles happen, where people looked at these different things and said, oh yeah, there's no denying that's God. And then thousands of years go on after Elijah and Elisha, and who shows up? Jesus. Jesus shows up, and he starts performing miracles that he's now able to attest, this is me. This has all been about me. Here's the proof. Let me do this. Let me raise somebody from the dead. Let me turn this water into wine. Let me split bread and feed thousands of people. This is me. And there's no denying it. So the answer to that question, if, if Jesus is superior to the angels, then if Jesus is superior to the angels, then he is superior to Adam. This is what the, what the author of Hebrews is going to do. He's going to kind of shift here. And, he, and the author of Hebrews is going to say, Jesus is superior to the angels. And if that's true, then guess what? He can save my soul the way that Adam couldn't. So he says this in Hebrews chapter two, looking at verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. All right, so he's saying something happened all the way back in the beginning when God created humanity and said, male and female, I'm gonna create them and they're gonna be my image bearers. They're gonna look and act and talk like me. They're gonna be like me. And the world was subjected to human authority. But now the author of Hebrews is going to shift and is going to say, yeah, that thing that was true about Adam and Eve, about humanity, it didn't work. Human beings, Adam and Eve, chose to deliberately disobey Jesus, commit cosmic treason, and say, I want to worship this creation. I want to worship this thing, this position of power and authority. I don't want God over me. I want to do this thing rather than worship the creator. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus shows up. And so this Psalm, I've got it there in the, in the little text. He's quoting Psalm chapter eight, verses four through six. It says, what is man that you're mindful of him? Of the sword of, of the son of man, that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The problem is, is everything in subjection? 
I mean, let's, let's be honest, right? Look around. We've got masks on. There's people watching online. Why? Because we have a little tiny invisible virus in subjection? No. We have fallen and we're sinful, but Jesus is not. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better than we could have ever imagined and better than we could ever be. Because when we look at Adam, the same way Adam represented represented all of humanity. He was a representative for all of us. That by him and by his sin, everyone sins. Jesus is now our representative and he is better. He's superior. He lives the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he is a perfect, perfect sacrifice. So again, we have this idea of looking back at Psalm 110, which the author of Hebrews has already quoted, and now he's going to Psalm 8. But he uses these two different phrases, and yet they're very similar. Psalm 110, he says, until I make your enemies a footstool. And then in Psalm 8, he says, you placed everything under his feet. Well, which is it? Have you done it? Have it has it not happened? Right? This is God now talking. God talking about the Messiah, about the Christ, about Jesus, is what the author of Hebrews is saying until I make your enemies a footstool and then you placed everything under his feet. This is that phrase that we've used. It's already not yet. That Jesus won the victory. He's won the battle for us. He represents us. That he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live so we wouldn't be subjected to sin. And yet I still sin. I still suffer. Jesus is already seated at the right hand of God in a position of power and authority and all of his enemies will be made a footstool and his enemies are under his feet. It's happened already and yet it's not there. We still suffer, we still sin. It's like this, my, um, my wife, I think a lot of you know this and if not, uh, congratulations to me. Uh, my wife is pregnant, but she's pregnant with a little girl, Right? Now, I've got two boys, and the way I can think about this is I'm already a dad. I'm already a dad to a little girl. I, I'm already watching videos, and, and, I, and in the moment when I saw that ultrasound, I'm immediately 20, 25, 40 years in the future walking my little girl down the aisle. Immediately, that's where my mind went. What am I going to say? How am I going to? I'm going to be a wreck. I'm already a dad to a little girl, and yet I have no idea what it's like to be a dad of a little girl. Not a clue. I haven't got two boys. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I got no clue. I'm already a dad, but I'm not. Jesus has already won the battle, and yet we're still waiting. So then the author of Hebrews then says this. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, to Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. Already, not yet. It's happened already. It's true. Jesus already won. He rose from the dead. He left nothing outside of his control. But he says at present, now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels 
that the creator of these angels took on frail humanity and flesh, was born of a virgin thousands of years ago and laid to rest in a manger. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He is our representative. By one man's sin, by Adam's sin, everyone sins and death enters in. So all die, but he, Jesus now comes and dies so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He's superior. But sometimes we don't hold fast. Sometimes our, our attention is diverted. Sometimes we want to turn our eyes away. And I've already mentioned this. But Jesus is the truly human one. He did what we were supposed to do but couldn't do. He took on flesh. He was tempted the same way that we're tempted yet without sin. He did what we couldn't do and he represents us and he died on our behalf and offers salvation and everlasting life to everyone and anyone who would believe and put their faith in him. So I've been talking about these Songs, let me, I'll, I'll get there in a second, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just two slides here I want to read. It says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's better. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, he's the first fruits, he's the first one to raise himself from the dead. For as by a man came death and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. And when he delivers the kingdom of God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Can you imagine? I think we're quickly approaching 400,000 people who have died from coronavirus just in one year. There's going to be a day where Jesus is going to stand there and he's going to say, all of that, false. I'm going to destroy death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who will put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him and that God may be all in all. This is all about Jesus. And so I, I mentioned these hymns. We would see Jesus and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Just look at him. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Hold fast. Don't divert your gaze. There's a story that um, uh, Drew uh, brought up uh, from, a, from a commentary, an African-American uh, commentary on the New Testament, specifically on Hebrews. And there's an author, um, James uh, Massey, who was telling a story about another preacher, uh, Gardner Taylor, uh, in the 20th century. And he says that this pastor used Hebrews 2.9, what we just talked about, to preach about Jesus as the Christian's dearest sight. 
I always love it when I'm, when I'm doing things and I'm preaching, right? I'm, I'm talking about, we would see Jesus, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And then you read a commentary and they say what I've already been saying, which is kind of fun. It's like, oh man, hey, look, I'm not a complete idiot, right? I got something, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And this title of the sermon was The Christian's Dearest Sight. Near the close of that sermon, Taylor mentioned having preached one night early in his ministry in Shreveport, Louisiana, when at some point during his delivery, the lights in that section of the city failed and the church was plunged into darkness. Startled by the event, Taylor stopped preaching. Well, you can imagine if it was just boom, done. I can't see my notes. I can't see people. I don't know what's going on. He stops preaching. But a voice soon rang out from one of the pews, go on, preacher, we can see Jesus in the darkness. Seeing Jesus is experienced in more than one way. We can see Jesus in the darkness and we can look at this world around us. There's so many things that want to divert our attention, that want to pull our attention away from what's in the box, (laughs) from Jesus, from the gift. So we can look and just gospel application, Jesus is greater than Adam. But I think more of an application in this sense though is are you ever tempted to let go? Are you tempted to to turn away? Are you tempted to turn your eyes away from Jesus? Are you tempted to give up on the prize, on the actual gift, which is Christ? And go back just like Adam did in the garden and worship the creation rather than the creator. To go back to this thing rather than God. It could be any number of things. You might say, if I just had a family, I would feel fulfilled. It will fulfill me. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, it won't. If I just had my job, if I just had this promotion and we turn our eyes away from Jesus, then I would be fulfilled. No, you won't. If I was just able to have sex, if I was just able to do this thing with this person in this way, I would be fulfilled. No, you won't. If I could just have this thing and this addiction, this drug, this this thing, this alcohol, I'd be fulfilled. No, you won't. If I just got my degree, if I just paid off my student loans, if this coworker was fired, if whatever it may be, then I would be fulfilled. No, you won't. Turn your eyes upon Jesus because he is greater. He's greater than anything this world has to offer. And it's so easy, instead of holding fast, to turn our eyes away and say, I want this thing. And if you're like me, you've gone over there and you grabbed that thing. You tried it out. And then you're left unfulfilled. Because this is a message that I got to preach to myself every single morning. Jesus is greater. Do we believe that? In a moment, we're going to have communion. What an awesome time to viscerally taste and remember who Jesus is, what he did for us, that he is superior to the angels. He's superior to Adam. He represents me. He stands before his father, before God Almighty, and says, that is my brother. That is my sister. We get to remember that. All I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you say, yes, I, I love Jesus. I don't do it perfectly. 
I'm constantly diverting my gaze. I'm constantly letting go and going after the things of this world that I think are going to fulfill me. And yet just remember those, those lyrics to that old hymn that when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and we look him full in his wonderful face, the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, in the light of his grace. As we take these elements, the bread which represents the body of Christ that was broken and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for me, we get to remember he is my creator. and I get to hold on to him. The one who died for my sins. Let's pray and then we'll get to sing and reflect on this passage and who Jesus is, that he is greater. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You have done what we can't do. But your son took my place. Your son took my place when I was screaming at him to get away, that I don't want him, I don't need him, that while I was an enemy of Jesus, he died for me. Father, I want to pray for those who have let go. Might be somebody in this room, might be somebody online, might be somebody who at one point in their life said, man, I love Jesus. And they held on tight. And then something, 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 some part of this world distracted them and said, I can fulfill that desire. And they turned and they left and they let go and they went back to the box. God, I want to pray for that individual, myself included, that we would see Jesus that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that that Jesus that we can see even in the darkness would become more real to us and that he would receive the honor and glory and praise forever and ever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.